Uh, Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 32 through 39. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of, of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. <clears throat> we also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks, to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our fruit, all our trees, and our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest, a priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the, for the sanctuary and for the ministering for the, and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. God, we uh, again today look to your word, to the Old Testament, um, to a place full of maybe strange traditions, um, unusual rituals, and, yes, they, and yet they have deep significance even now um, for how you, how you are, who you are, for your character that you are an unchanging God that is forever and always um, a good God, a true God, a faithful God, a merciful God, a God who desires to bring uh, his creation back to him. God, I pray that we would, um, we would soften our hearts to your word tonight. God, I would pray that I would be a loving steward that under the great pastor Jesus, that I could... Um, be but a sheep dog, a shepherd dog um, tonight, helping us to, to see this more fully, to gather us together under you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, today we finish this sort of mini-series that we've got um, called Oaths. A four-part series in chapter 10. And after this, we have uh, just two weeks left. Some of you are going, yes. Um, others of you are sad to see Nehemiah go. I know there's somebody that feels that way. 
Um, but this is the last part um, of this oath series. Uh, and as we, as we are all aware at this point, the people have come cut to the heart, so to speak, um, in, in a place of revival, of spiritual awakening, and they've come to re-obligate themselves, to recommit themselves to things that their forefathers um, neglected. And so the theme, if you want to take it, the summary statement of this section uh, is the very last sentence, we will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. That's what this whole thing, this whole paragraph is about that Elijah just read. Verses 32 through 39 walk through the obligations to give, but the purpose is that we will not neglect the house of our God. That all of this giving, all of this service is to care for as God wills it to be for his temple. And what will make the parallel today is that there are not there is not a one-to-one -one parallel, but there are so many parallels between the people of Israel and this what we're calling the city of God in Jerusalem um, and the church. They're not all the same, but many, many things that are happening here have their parallel in the New Testament. And so um, we, we look at this also, and we've done this in the last few weeks, taking an effect of saying, what is it that they are not wanting to have happen again? What is it the Israelites are just absolutely terrified of happening again to them? Right? There, there are people that have come out of exile and they're terrified for things to fall apart because of their own sin. They desperately want God's mercy, and they know that God calls them into obedience as a form of discipline, as a form of, of reawakening them towards him. Sometimes he will bring hardships upon his people. And so in this passage, we have them, we have them, we have them looking at, in this oath series, we've looked at very specific sins, right? They've said, we're not going to intermarry, we're going to observe the Sabbath. And then here we have the final um, obligation that they take on, which is that we are going to obligate ourselves to give and to tithe. Uh, I think many, many of us that grew up in the church are familiar with this word tithing. I certainly grew up in a church where tithing was a very common phrase. Um, used less now, I think, in the church, but certainly when many of us were growing up, uh, tithing was the big thing. And there's always been a, a conversation around tithing. Do we still have to tithe or not? What is tithing? So, so tithing literally means tenthing. It literally means giving a tenth, taking a tenth and putting it towards something. So this notion of tithing was a, was a way of structuring and setting up a form of giving and a, and a, a way of saying this is, this is how much is requested to be given to God. This is how much he's asking for. And it comes from the Mosaic law. It comes from um, that covenant. But the idea of giving back to God goes all the way back to Abel and Cain. When they come and they offer, they offer a sacrifice of first fruits, which is another phrase we see in this passage, right? That we will bring the first fruits. Well, if you remember in, in Genesis, Abel and Cain bring their first fruits to God. And it is how, and, and there's so many parallels, it's how they bring them. Are they obedient to what God asks for? Are they truly bringing the first and the best? There's so many layers of what goes on there because God is asking for us not to just offer to a certain amount. Tithing is not about offering 10% and then checking a box and we're good with God. 
Tithing is much a much bigger conversation about what does it mean to give? What does it mean to give to the temple in this case, or in our case, to give to the church as people that are desiring, running after, wanting God's presence in their life. That's what we're really after. We're not looking at what, what's required, John? What are you requiring? What are you asking of me? Because I've had a lot of people ask me different things. What are you asking me today to do? Um, and how do you explain it? That's not what we're getting at. I'm not, I'm not looking to a number or setting up a certain uh, rigid structure. Instead, we're diving into the heart of what it looks like to give as a Christian. And there, there's, there's reasons that this is set up. Um, in this particular context, uh, in the Old Testament, Nehemiah is an administrator and he's ruling over a city. And he's, he's sort of an appointed governor of the Persian king, remember? So, so this is actually what you would call a theocracy, right? This is a, Israel is a theocracy. They're, they're a theocratic nation. That means that they are a God-ruled nation and the leaders are worshiping God and stewarding the people under the leadership of God the king. Which is interesting also because there was a departure. They had human kings. Remember, Israel asked, can we have a king? And they had Saul, and they had David, and they had Solomon. And then things went worse and worse. They divided into two nations. The kings got more terrible and more terrible. And pretty soon, the kings fall into complete apostasy. They're worshiping idols. There's, there's, there's no sense of, um, of, of a uh, allegiance to Yahweh. And the nation completely crumbles under itself. So Nehemiah, in a way, is returning to the sort of prophetic Moses-style leadership of saying, no, we're going to return to a, to a theocracy where God is truly king in this place. And the temple is our way. And rebuilding this and giving towards the temple is actually, it's sort of the central point of governance in this place. So all of these structures that he's setting up and who gathers the wood and how they, how they take care of the Levites, this is all actually a way of governing their country. And so it's essential. And so he actually employs sort of a tax, right? He says, we will take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel um, for the service of the house of God. Obviously, we don't do that, right? We're not taxing uh, churchgoers in this day and age like they would then. That's a clear, that's not a comparison to the way things are now. But it's just interesting that he was able to do that because the, the temple and the people and the city were completely intertwined. There wasn't a distinction between them like there is now. Um, but even though he imposes a tax, notice that he, that, that the obligation here is we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly. So the people have already bought in. In this point of revival in chapter 8 where they're, where they're um, taking on this new concept, this new sense of uh, recommitting themselves, when that happens, they are already buying in and they're saying, no, 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 Nehemiah, it's not that you're enforcing this on us. We really want to do this. We want to obligate ourselves to this. We want to give in all of the ways that would be appropriate. Lead us in how that would look like. Lead us in what would be fair. Lead us in what would actually take care of the temple. Or in our case, asking somebody to say, lead us, whether through its budget meetings or membership meetings, lead us on what it would look like to take care of of Citizens Church. That's what we would be asking if we were in this specific place, right? And what I think we will be asking pretty soon as a, as a group is to say, 
it, it, hopefully you ask me, you say, John, how can you lead us? Where can we go and what do we need to do? What are we looking at? What are our goals? What, what's, the, what's the point of what we're getting at as a church? What, what are we actually practically aiming at? Because Nehemiah was a very practical person. If we haven't found that out, he, he, he's an administrator. He, he appoints people to tasks. He, he says, we're going to cast lots for who brings in the wood, right? He's got systems and structures set up because he knows that if you just say, hey, the nation before me, all of the people out in the crowd, you need to get this done. And everybody goes, of course, we'll get it done because we're so moved right now. He knows that that will fizzle out unless you actually appoint people to get things done. He knows that. And so he's taken this moment and he set up a sense of what does giving look like. And the other thing that's really interesting to look at here is because it's a whole city and because um, it's care for the temple, that this is a care that is primarily and first focused and geared towards God, but it's also geared towards one another. So there is a sense in which the nation is worshiping God, but then there is a sense in which they are providing not just for the Levites and the priests, but for one another in creating and sustaining the ability for them to worship together. Remember, not so long ago, Ezra, in the prequel to this, was rebuilding the temple. When Nehemiah comes on the scene, the temple's there with no wall. And so the people are very conscious of the fact that like some of these people had to live without a wall in just a temple. And they're saying, that wasn't cool. We don't want to do that again. Can we please, can we please maintain everything here? Can we maintain the walls? And can we maintain this temple so that what we just built doesn't fall apart? Charles Fensham is a commentator on this that I've looked at a lot through this series. And he says, the temple was very important for Nehemiah, the continual maintenance of the temple cult and personnel. That word cult, by the way, that's what any commentator will call, call any religious group in ancient times. And personnel was a necessity as a building, as a binding factor, uniting all of the loose elements of Jewish families who had returned from exile. It bound them to the service of God, but also to one another. And then he says something that's interesting that we might not think about. Uh, in every religious community, this is one of the most important characteristics. It was not only a legal obligation, but a living reality to them, because with the renewal of the covenant, this neat recommitment that they make when they hear the word of God read, the renewal of the covenant, they came into a living relationship with the Lord. Now that's foreign, but incredible. That's foreign to us because we are in a living relationship with God. We're, we're post-Jesus, so we have the Holy Spirit. We have a living relationship. But imagine these people who truly, who truly were in a space where God's presence would not be with them in that living relationship without the temple where his presence dwelled. So they had a different sense of importance. They re this was so important, right? They couldn't look away from this. This was, this was a situation where um, it was so present in their mind and so necessary that there was no way that they were going to go back, you would think, right? Now, spoiler alert here, um, what happens not very far after, if you've read ahead and finished Nehemiah, is that they utterly fail. So this just goes to show you can be in this space and utterly fail, and maintenance is so, so important. To this, to, to, to not just feeling in the moment, oh, I'm so excited to change things. Oh my gosh, the streets are flooded with protests right now in Portland. I'm so excited to make a difference, right? It, it's not just that, it's what's the long game? And so Nehemiah is setting up structures for the long game. And so uh, 
let's jump in here and I'm going to do a little Old Testament, New Testament. So to talk about giving a little more, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bounce us between this chapter and this section. And if you have a Bible open, I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And that's how I'm going to, that's how I'm going to move between things here. I'm going to bring us into sort of an old covenant, an old testament understanding where, where Moses had his law and you had to obey everything according to the law. And then I'm going to go past what, what I'd call the A-bomb of Jesus' death on the cross. I call it an A-bomb because Jesus' death on the cross tore the temple. The law totally changes in its bearing towards us, and we no longer live, as Romans 6:14 says, under the law, but we live under grace. We are no longer slaves to the law, but slaves to Christ, right? So we're still obedient to somebody, but we're not obedient to a set of structures and laws and dietary restrictions and days of worship and all of those things that they were then. We're obedient to one person. We're obedient to God himself and his presence dwells within us. And so to, to make this connection between the two and to look at what is giving, okay, John, get to the point, what, what is giving look like for us? And what are, we, what are we supposed to think as Christians? It's going to be easier to jump into 2 Corinthians 8. So let's go there. Um, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8. Paul is, in 2 Corinthians 8, he's making an appeal. Okay, so we're going to run parallel stories here. We've got Nehemiah and then we've got Paul writing a letter to the Corinthian church. And he's making an appeal on behalf of, of the churches in Macedonia who have been just oppressed who have just gotten messed up, who are poor, who are just broke. And he's writing to Corinth, and he's, he's basically making a fundraising letter. So chapter 8 and 9, if you want to read them as a fundraising letter, I think it really helps to think through, what is he, what is he doing here? He's writing, and he's, he's asking this church with wealth and business people. He's asking them, and he's saying, you promised to give, and now I'm writing for you to actually give. That's the premise of what's being talked about here. And so what he gets at here and what's so helpful for us as a church is he says, um, this is what giving ought to look like. And that to us is a much more one-to-one comparison, right? We can look at Nehemiah, we can say, this is how they give and this is the heart behind it. But then we can go to 2 Corinthians, we can say, this is, this is a church giving and this is what giving would look like for us. So the first thing is that giving is not commanded. I'm not going to make a case today um, as we're coming up into this membership meeting and thinking through this. I'm not making a case that suddenly you're commanded to give. So no way what I'm doing. So in that way, this is nothing like Old Testament tithe where they were obligated and commanded to give a tenth. Paul is really clear. He says, I say this not as a command. So he's asking for the fundraising. He's asking for their goodwill. He's asking for them to desire to give. But he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So he's not obligating them. He's not commanding them to give. But what he's doing instead is he's, he's, he's appealing to their heart and he's saying, I'm going to tell you a story that will help you see the need in which you ought to give toward. Right? I'm going to help you by seeing the need. Here's, here's an illustration. Um, if you have older siblings, you could probably really get this. If your parent appealed for you and said and commanded you and said, you've got to help your younger brother or sister. You've got to help them with this thing. They need your help. Go over there. Go take care of them today. Go fix their car. Go help them clean their room. Whatever it was that you had to do. You were going to have resentment, obligation that probably led to kind of a seething frustration, hatred, probably a good healthy amount of condescension 
where you're better than them and how dare you have to go beneath yourself to help your little brother or your little sister take care of their room. And that's all of that is because it's commanded of you. Now flip it. Say your little brother or your little sister who you like, um, who you're getting along with says, man, I just, can you please help me? I'm, I can't take care of this problem. I need your help with it. I love you so much. You're so good at this. Could you help me with this? And you come in, you sit down with them and you grow in friendship. You, go, you grow in connection because you saw their need. You came to help their need. You built trust. You see the total difference. Same thing is happening. Older sibling is helping younger sibling. One, it's commanded. It fosters resentment and frustration. The other one, the need is shown. The desire is indicated. And trust and friendship and camaraderie are built. Obviously, I'm advocating that we shoot for part two in our giving, right? And I think Paul's shooting for that too. He's saying, I don't command it because commanding doesn't work. Every time in the law, people would fall on their face over and over because they would start to resent the structures and the laws that God had given them because they didn't see that it was about Jesus. So my sincere question for us today is to ask you in your giving right now. And I'm going to talk specifically about your giving to the church, because I think that's a better way to frame this particular conversation. We give to lots of different charities and groups and, and support different people, but specifically in your giving to the church. Are you building a relationship? Are you feeling a desire? And are you seeing a great need that you find in the church that is essential? And are you seeking to fill that need? Or there's a whole number of other options that we'll go through on how you might feel. So we'll get into all of that. But how is your actual giving right now? How do you feel about it? How do you, what do you feel like it's doing? What do you feel like it's, is missing in it? So we'll start, we'll start today and we'll spend most of the time on this first point of, of how do we give and why do we give. And then we'll spend just a little bit of time on, on ways that we probably ought not to give. And then looking at, at Jesus' role in all of this. Okay, so the first is why give. Um, well, the first part's obvious. What, what would happen in Nehemiah, flipping back to Nehemiah, what would happen if nobody gave? If everybody said, I'm not bringing my first fruits of the ground, I'm not bringing my crops, I'm not, I'm not trading things in for money to bring to you to support um, things that need to be bought for the temple. I'm not going to bring firewood to burn. In the temple, there had to be a fire 24-7, right? That was one of the obligations, is a fire 24-7. I'm not going to bring wood. What would happen? You simply wouldn't have a place of worship that can run. You wouldn't have Levites and priests that can tend to the needs of the people, that can teach, that can proclaim the scriptures, that know what they're doing. You wouldn't have any of that. So the most obvious thing is that the church, without giving, the church has no means of supplying the necessary structures, services of worship. They don't have means of supplying the space, nor do they have the means of supplying the focus, right? As much as we all want to worship during our week, we find over and over that we walk in Sunday morning and we go, gosh, I can't believe it, but I basically forgot all about this by this morning. I need to be reminded by somebody else that, that the church is actually a place that brings and preserves a certain level of focus. Um, and we know that this is essential because going again to Nehemiah 13 at the end of this, the spoiler alert at the end, when, when, when Nehemiah comes back in chapter 13, he finds out that they haven't, right? They, they haven't. They've, they've fallen off the wagon, so to speak, and they haven't supported 
the way that they should. And one commentator puts it this way, he says, it describes the situation in which Nehemiah is talking about chapter 13. It describes the situation in which Nehemiah found the temple and Levites upon his return from Persia, and the Levites had not been receiving their portion and re returned to their fields to survive, thus neglecting the house of God. So the Levites didn't die as martyrs and starve in the temple because nobody was feeding them. They just said, you're not going to support us. We've got to go back and tend crops and do our life, you know. And that's just the reality of what happens when a church or when a temple, in this case, isn't supported. That people have to live, people have to eat. And so that's, that's the first standpoint is we give so that those who work at the church, the Levites and the priests, and in, in Paul's case, the pastors or elders, we, we in one part give to support that. We, we give to support them so that they may administrate, take care of, uh, manage the spaces in which we worship, our building, for instance, uh, that they may structure how the services are happening, who's taking care of who. Uh, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul's advice to Timothy, who is a, a Timothy, both letters are Paul's basically, they're called the pastoral epistles. And Paul is writing to young Timothy, who is a pretty young guy, um, who's, who's pastoring a church, who's an elder. Uh, and he's giving him all kinds of just super practical advice. They're, the, they're personally like some of the most helpful chapters for me as a pastor to go, okay, uh, for somebody who doesn't really know a lot about this and was just diving in, what does Paul have to say about it? Um, and he says two lines that have become sort of familiar lines. Uh, Do not muzzle the ox when he's treading out the grain. So basically what he means by that is if you put a muzzle around an ox and they're going around the wheel that they used to grind with the millstone, uh, they can't eat any of the grain that's sitting around, right? That You're muzzling them. You're saying you can't have any of this even though it's here. He says, don't do that. He says, let whoever is working and doing the job and taking care of the place of worship, let them partake. And the other metaphor he uses is the laborers shall earn their wages so that they can continue to labor well. Um, so that, that is one aspect of why we give. We know that Paul was a tent maker, right? So it's not, not all ministries are set up in such a way that um, people have a singular uh, occupation or way of income. Paul had a, was a tent maker. He could travel. It allowed him to be mobile and disengaged from a church, go and sort of make it on his own. He had sort of a side hustle, you could say. And then he could build up in a ministry and people would donate and that would help support him. And then he might go to a new place. Um, and he always had that in his tool belt as a way to help. These things are, there's all different ways you can cut this. But even Paul, who had his side hustle, was telling Timothy that this isn't the way it always ought to be. Just because this works for me doesn't mean it will work for everybody. Um, so we, we give to support the space, the building, the people who work there. We give to the church and the community to support those in need. So uh, in this case, we have to look to Timothy again. Paul explains to Timothy in chapter 5, he says, this is how one should care for the widows. And he goes in this long sort of, explanation of how particularly in that particular context you should or should not as a church care for another person do they have family to care for themselves he went through all these other things and basically what he's outlining is he was saying as a church there ought to be boundaries and and ways in which the church is set up to say we are going to bring in the giving that people are giving to god 
And they're giving it to the church as a way of giving it to God, right? The, the people of Israel are giving their tithes to the Lord, but they're putting them in the hands of the Levites, which, by the way, Nehemiah administrates really honestly. He says, you got this from the Persian culture. He says, I'm going to send another person with the Levite just so you guys feel safer about giving. There's always two eyes on the giving, right? So, um, but basically to say there, there should be structures, there should be things, ways are set up so that the church can responsibly, orderly, care for the marginalized, care for the widows, donate. The way we do this is to donate to Transition Project, right? As a group, we say, this is our outreach and this is where we're going to focus as a church. We're going to bring in donations for this. Or the deacons say, this is somebody within our church community. Because a lot of it, in Timothy's case, it was the widows that were part of the church. So how do we actually take the money that's been given towards our church and have a significant fund that's given so that we can missionally commit to our church itself as well as, as its neighborhood so that there can be a sense of uh, equity in the church. That the church is not a place of hierarchy where some do way better than others. Um, but instead that a church would be a place where there's peer-to-peer support where nobody would, would be truly in need, which is, I think, a beautiful thing um, when you think about giving, something that maybe we don't think about in our giving right now to give in such a way that that people that are truly in need, do we know who is in need in our church? Are we expressing when we are in need to even in our small church? Are we expressing when we're, we're really stuck? And we it could be useful for the deacons to know. It could be useful for us to be able to say, hey, how do we help this need out? Um, that those things were explained and, and told to Timothy so that he could care for them. Um, and then for Nehemiah, there were two other specifics. He said, um, so that we are not a disgrace among the nations. Remember when they built the temple and the wall? He said, we do not want to be a disgrace among the nations. So I, I guess a, a, an obvious parallel to that would be to say there's a lot of churches in disrepair in Portland. Now, I'm not a big person apprising the building as a big deal. But I am somebody in saying uh, we need to be a witness. Like we should be put together. We should look put together. Our website should look put together. Like we do not want to be a disgrace among the nations because we are just in our image sharing the image of God to people that don't know him. If there's ever a time at which this is more present and obvious to us, it's with all that's breaking out in the nation right now. There are, there are multiple versions of who Jesus is right now. And they're so stark in contrast. Right? So it's not just about giving to the actual physical walls of the church. It's also to have churches that are built up and cared for well enough. People, The people and leaders are cared for well enough and are schooled and are caring for who Jesus really is and are demonstrating that really well. They're supported by their church to go out and demonstrate that really well. And then the last piece, but probably the most important piece, is beyond those very practical things. You might say, John, yeah, I, I know all of that. That's, like, really obvious. Beyond the practicals, though, is probably the crux of it and where Paul spends most of his time, where Jesus certainly spent all of his time, is that the act of giving makes a difference in our hearts. So let's look at that. How, how do we give? How if the act of giving makes a difference in our hearts? A good, John, I get that they go to the appropriate places. I trust that. Maybe you don't, but if you do, you can say, I trust that. If not, we can chat. And you say, how, how is it, though, that I'm supposed to give? How? 
I just, I hit a wall when I go to give. I just have all these feelings when I think about giving. I get, all this baggage comes up, all this frustration comes up. So John, God, walk me through how to give. So let's jump back to 2 Corinthians, and here we'll go a little more deeply. So if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians, if you have it open, go to chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Um, and I think Paul sets a really high bar here. I just want to say that up front. He sets a, heart, a high bar. Because um, Paul's, let's just be honest, he's a man of confidence and boldness. The guy doesn't mince words. So here's how he frames giving. He says, we want you to know, brothers. Remember, he's writing to the Corinthians here. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. So two things right there. In their severe test of affliction, they're being persecuted. They have an abundance of joy and they're totally poor. All those things are lumped together. In all of that constellation, they have overflowed in a wealth of generosity in their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Gosh, so dense, so good. You could unpack that for hours. All kinds of contrasts in that. All, all kinds of seeming paradoxes. What on earth would compel somebody that is being persecuted and is dirt poor to be giving whatever they have of their means and beyond what they have of their means because they want to relieve other saints it says for the relief of the saints. They want to relieve other church members in other places that are probably going through things a lot like they're going through. They have such a deep sense of compassion that whatever little they have, they will give in order to help another who may not have it. Uh, I don't know if your brain goes where my brain goes, but my brain immediately go, immediately went to our, our present conflict our present racial injustice raging across our streets, right? I don't know if you're anything like me, but this week what has occurred to me is, oh, there are so many people with so much less than me. So much less than me. I may not see them in their church. I may see some of them in my church. But if I look just on the, the discourse that's happening around Black Lives Matter, right, just to see the amount of injustice on a systemic level, historically, generation to generation, that has created intense poverty, that has created um, black holes of places with poor educational structures. There are so many places where I can give. And I, one who has Christ, one who is proclaimed to be a Christian, who is born again and has the Holy Spirit living with me, I should be what Jesus calls overflowing. The, the, the Spirit should overflow with me and overflow outward. And so what these people did is they had that. They saw the need and they were clamoring, saying, pick me, pick me. That's what this text says. Paul says, 
He says, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were saying, Paul, Paul, just pick me. I can help. How many of us are doing that right now where we're just, we have that kind of fervor of saying, pick me, I'm in. Get me in the ring. I want to go. I mean, that, that convicts me to think this week about that. And to think we have, a, we have a situation that actually makes this really present and palpable for us. We have a situation where we can really identify with what this felt like. Where we can say maybe we're in the place of the Corinthians. We're in a church that's a little more sustainable, maybe not as persecuted. And we're getting letters from, from the Macedonian churches on behalf of Paul saying, look, you guys said you were going to commit. Now I'm, I'm asking you to commit. That's basically what's happening here. And are we clamoring like they did when they had to help other churches saying, pick me, pick me? Are we giving to our church in such a way that our church can overflow and structure and plan for that? Are we giving to our communities? So the first step of giving is for us to ask, how are we giving? And are we giving with a kind of generosity? And if we're not, maybe, maybe put that aside for a second and say, hmm, let me think about that. Let me think about what that means. Because this was a, a church that was giving first to God and second to the community by way of giving to God. So notice Paul was, was asking for these donations through church structures. But this was a ministry of politically renegade people. They had an allegiance to Christ, not Rome. They were socially underground. They were a movement. And they were created to be supportive of others in need. Are we a church like that? And if not, how can we become a church like that? That's my appeal to us, is for us to gather together and say, let's be that kind of church. With that kind of, that, that level of passion and fire that they had. It moves me to hear that. So practically, once they have that heart, if we can be people of that heart, what were the ways in which they did that? Well, Nehemiah says they give first fruits. What does first fruits mean? In verse 35, it says, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree. And he goes on and on. He even talks about, this is interesting, uh, the, bring the firstborn of our sons. What does that mean? And of our cattle. I actually totally skipped over that until just minutes before the sermon. Firstborns of our sons? Quickly read the ESV notes on that. This is awesome to me. They, they brought the firstborn of their sons. Imagine as a dad bringing your oldest child, probably a male in this case, bringing your oldest, right, right, a son, bring your oldest son next to you to the temple. Not because they're going to be sacrificed. You know full and well they're, they're not going to be sacrificed. But you also have the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. You have the story of Passover where they painted the blood over their doors so that the firstborn wouldn't be taken. And to actually bring your firstborn son by your side to the temple and have them have sacrifices in front to absolve you of your sin is a pretty compelling image. We don't really have anything quite as comparable to that. I mean, there's something to that where they're saying there's something about bringing these first fruits and then having God spare the son, but take the other, the other things as a way of cleansing their sin. Think about the parallel of what Jesus's death means for us in that. It's pretty, pretty powerful. Proverbs also says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. And, and the Hebrew word for first fruits is really interesting, bikurim. And it literally translates to promise to come. 
promise to come. So what you're doing when you bring your first fruits, if we think of our offering, if we think of our giving to our local church, if we think of our giving to citizens, if we think of that as a, as a promise to come, well, that's a, that's a different way of thinking about it. it. It's just a start. It's just a start of what's coming. You're overflowing at the brim, and the first thing to come out is some money, maybe, right? Some donation, some time. But it's just, it's just the start of the spirit of what you've got, the passion of what you're about to hit the streets with, the vigor of what you've got coming for years and years, that this is just the first fruits. When Paul talks about Christ in Corinthians 15, verse 20, he calls Christ the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, to give it a different spin. That Christ's resurrection from the dead was the first fruit, and there's more coming, baby. I mean, isn't that cool? To think that, that Christ's resurrection is saying, and, and all of you guys, I'm coming back for you. That our giving and our donation is an indication of our heart to say, it's all like this and this is just the start. I may, not, I may only have the means to give this right now, but I guarantee you it's all like this. Romans eleven sixteen says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the roots, it's holy. And if the root is holy of the tree, so are the branches. Just gives you a picture, right? Poker players, it's the bet that shows you have the hand. You put enough in so that you're obligated so that you're going to play. That's what our giving should look like. And I hadn't thought about it in this way, you guys. I looked at it and I go, it's like it's the tip of the iceberg. It's like the giving that we're giving right now is the visual part. It's the visual part, but it indicates so much more. And it's not, before you get hung up and say, well, the more I give, the larger that tip is, which means the larger the bottom is, so I should give more. John's telling me I should give more. That's not what I'm talking about here, because we know that the widow who gave just a mite, right? The story of Jesus who observes the Pharisees plunking in all this money and people plunking it, and the, the widow gives just the smallest Roman coin that she had given more than all they had given, right? So we know it's not about the money. It's about something deeper. It's about the level of commitment. It's, it's interesting. Um, here's a good example. And, and again, I'm not, don't in any way think when I give these examples that I'm holding us that I'm suggesting something about what it should look like or a model. I'm just, I'm giving inspiration because this is a heart movement on our part. But John Wesley with, with Wesleyan um, schools, with uh, the Wesleyan tradition, with Methodists. Um, so John Wesley was a very fiery preacher, very committed, right? And at the early part of his ministry, he made just 20, he made just 30 pounds, English pounds. And, and he lived on 28 so he could give two away. And then sooner or later, he was to the point where he was making 60 pounds. Instead of increasing his living, he gave 32 away. Then he got to the point of making 1,400 pounds. And he was giving nearly all of it away. Somebody did a comparable of his income. They'd say he, by now, with his royalties at the end of his ministry, his books and all of his things in England, he would have made 160 grand a year, and he lived like he was living on $20,000. It's just powerful to think that our lives are not a force of accumulation, 
but are a force of God blessing us in ways so that we can just pour out for people. What a high bar Paul sets. What a high bar John Wesley sets. Instead, so many of us are in a place where we are are seeking to have more so that we can acquire more. And so many of those things that we are acquiring give us new burdens, new things to ensure, new things to worry about, new anxieties. That our, our money is all poured into one particular thing. And, and the intention of giving is to say, let God bless you and then just give as much of it away as you can. That's the Christian way of giving. And it's so powerful for me, to, for me to think about what's my intention. So that gets us to the second point. How do we give? We give with intention and planning. So first, first point was first fruits. We give those first fruits with intention and planning. We give the first thing from the harvest, the, the sort of firstborn quote, right? The first thing that's to come. We say, I'm going to give and I'm going to give with intention and planning. I'm going to plan it out. I'm going to think in advance what it is. Paul says in, in Corinthians 9, a little bit later on in the chapter, I'll read verse 3 through 5. He says, but I am sending the brothers. Um, so Paul's sending people ahead of himself to the Corinthians. He says, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. So Paul's already actually vouched for the Corinthians because the Corinthians indicated to Paul that they would give. He said the Corinthians are a good bunch. They're going to give. So he's vouched for them. So he says, I'm sending people ahead so that you guys can plan because this would be really embarrassing if this fell apart, right? He says that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready to give money, you have said you would desire to give, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for you being, for being so confident. So that Paul would be humiliated and the Corinthians would be humiliated. Right? So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to give you to give ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So that gets back to our commanded piece here. If you're giving and it's feeling as though it's a compulsive exaction, that it's being pulled out of you, then something's not right in your giving. And I would just pray that we examine that that we would listen to God and that we'd say, why is it feeling that way? Because Paul says that's not what it's about. He says, I'm actually coming ahead to give you a space to say, you vouch for it in your word, and we know your yes to be your yes. So I want to give you some time to plan. What does that figure actually look like for you? Plan so that when people come to you, in our case, so that when we're ready to sit down and have a membership meeting and say we're going to be members, that you can re-examine that and you can say, okay, this is what I've been giving. And I plan and I've thought about it. I've examined my heart. And this is what I want to give. And I feel great about it. And it's what I want to give. Of course, yeah, I might want to make more so I could give more. But of what I make, I feel really good about giving this. That I've planned and I've thought about it. And then I would say take it a step further. Hope to give a certain amount someday. Actually set a goal. I would like to sit down with Megan and we would set a goal and say, this is what we would love to give. Or this is the kind of thing we would love to fulfill. Let's have a goal, not just like we would have a goal for our Roth IRA or retirement fund or for whatever our business is matching, for our, for our school's education, our kids' education, our college fund. We all have goals for that because culture tells us to have goals for that. But culture is not telling you to have goals for your giving. But what I'm reading here is that it's, it's important. 
The reason we're gifted what we have is to create equity in the world, to alleviate injustice in the world. If you're talking about Black Lives Matter right now and you have the means and you have time and you have money, those are all different means, then you have to start now saying, I, if I'm actually going to talk out about this, then I need to plan and I need to have a goal that I'm striving to get to because we all work off goals. They're so motivating. Do you have a giving goal? It's just a practical a practical thing that Paul gives. And he talks about giving willingly and desiringly. We've already gone over this enough. But just to give, as he says, but prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine, not as a command. That I didn't, it wasn't Paul coming and saying, and, and the Corinthians say, yeah, okay, here's what we're going to give because Paul's been really hard on us. He kind of tweaked our arms, so yeah, we're just going to give it, but don't come back, you know. This is it. I'm not getting any more. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's saying, just give it as a genuine gift that you're just super excited as the Macedonians were to relieve the saints. And the fourth is in accordance with your means. And so this is what I was talking about. It's not a money figure. And there's tremendous grace here, but I also want to say that this is not a loophole. <laughs> this sometimes for me feels like, oh, this is my loophole. See, accordance with my means. And I've already thought about, yep, this is definitely in accordance with my means. We're good. I'm done. I'm not going to think about this anymore. It makes me too guilty. I don't want to do it. This is not a loophole. But it is It is true grace where Paul says that, that, that they gave according to their means and beyond their means. He says, if you continue on in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, I'll read through 15. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And that's just, you can unpack that for days. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So he's saying, okay, you guys have the desire. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desire may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Not about out of what you might have, out about what you wish you had, just out of what you have. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need and then there may be a fairness. Talking about equity, right? He's saying those who have give who those who don't have. But those who have, don't be giving to those who don't need it. That's what he means. He says, for I do not mean that others should be eased. So there have been times, and many of us have baggage with this, and the church is guilty of this, and it's gotten interwoven in political structures, of not needing the money, but just matriculating the money in through tithing mandates and structures in which they get fatter and fatter and fatter. And the sin of gluttony is ever-present in the church in those places. He, Paul is saying, do not do that. He's saying, but there are so many lean and passionate churches. So many churches that desire to do good and just don't have the means or the ability. Those are what I'm talking about. He says, think, use wisdom, and give to others that should be eased. So that, right, there would be equity. Not so that it might come back to you later. It's not like a karmic thing. He's saying, so that later... 
when those people have and somebody else doesn't have. It can be paid forward. It can move around. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about in accordance of your means and in proportion to what people have and where the need is. So this stuff is, on some level, maybe it's common sense. But I don't know. I don't think about it that often. We feel like there's rules and structures and I have to or I should or I feel guilty that I'm not. He says it's simpler than that. It comes from the heart. And he uses as a steering device Christ, who came from ultimate riches, came down as a baby, grew up as a carpenter, and then suffered for us and died on a cross. So he would endure ultimate poverty, have no possessions, be demeaned, as, as I heard one black pastor called this week, to be lynched, to be lynched in front of a crowd. To die in the ultimate condemnation, in the ultimate, um, just the horrible video that you don't want to watch when it goes viral. That's how Christ died. For us, so that we may be rich. He says that's the starting point that we're at. That's where your giving is coming from. All of your money, money's meaningless. He's like, all of it is, is a gift from God. Everything you have, it doesn't matter how much or how little you have, all that you have is God's gift, and it's exactly what he wanted you to have right now. And he still asks you to give abundantly from it. But here's what we think. We think this. We think we have quite little. But actually what we think is, this is what we're actually thinking when we say I have quite little, because trust me, I have thought this so many times. I just, I don't have enough. Here's what I'm actually thinking. I don't have enough compared to the next person I'm comparing it against. That's what I really don't have enough. Do I not have enough? No. I don't have enough compared to the next person that I'm comparing it to. And Paul says, compare it not to the neighbor whose houses you admire, but to the poor and the downtrodden whom you give. That's who we're comparing to. Look at that comparison. Stop looking at the comparisons of all of those who have more to you. And instead, look at the comparisons of those who have less to you and see the inequity there. Not the inequity against you and the injustices against you and how you have so little compared to the wealthy 1% to compare to the wealthy in your city. That's not the comparison you should be making. You're focusing all your time on the wrong thing. He says, focus your time on those who have less than you and look at that comparison and oh, how convicting that ought to be. I heard this illustration this week um, in, used with, uh, in educating around anti-racism, around this idea of how do we not just, not say I'm not a racist, but how do we actually fight racial injustice? Imagine there's a, a racetrack, right? And we're like 90% the way around it. You could imagine marginalized communities, pe people of color, are, I don't know, 10, 20, 50, 70, whatever percent they're around it. I'm not going to, it's not, it's not about the proportion. It's about the fact that we're ahead of them on the race. Systemically, system, systemic racial injustice looks like this. White people in general are ahead of them on the racetrack. And we're nervous. We'll, we'll fall behind our peers that we're racing alongside when we go to help them. That's what we're nervous about. As a church, when we don't give, we're nervous about falling behind our peers. We're not actually nervous most of the time about not being able to provide for ourselves or survive. Now, sometimes we are. And I'm, not, I'm not condemning or pointing my finger at that. I'm just saying that if we examine our heart, as I've examined mine, that so often I'm just comparing to the wrong things. And they said, and this is not gospel people. 
They're just looking at practicals and they're saying, uh, without Jesus in the equation, I can see this plain as day, that you're all comparing to the wrong thing. And here Paul says it just so clear as day. He says, yeah, we should all be anti-racist. That's what he's saying. He's saying we should all care for the marginalized because they have less than us. And he starts in the church, which, by the way, is a reason we should have more diverse churches. To not all birds of a feather flock together, right? To not be that way. Because it happens first in the church that people of God care for each other, but then we move outward. So, so I hope you see by now that this theology of giving that I'm providing isn't just the theology of giving, it's a theology of care. It's a way of thinking about care. That our giving is fundamentally tied to our justice, to the, to the injustice we're perpetrating or to the justice that we're helping create. Tim Keller in a talk on this said, Paul, Paul isn't commanding them, but he's actually putting a larger burden on them. He's saying, I'm not commanding you, but I'm just going to say this. Jesus came from ultimate riches and died in ultimate poverty to give you ultimate riches. Now what are you going to do about it? He, he actually gave them a bigger burden. It's a more daunting burden to have if we take Christ seriously. So I'm getting off my notes here for a second. So we're giving in accordance to our means. We're tackling a spiritual concern fundamentally first and thereby tackling a social concern. And this is super important because we will get carried away this week looking out at the needs of the world, thinking we are the savior of the problem of the moment. And we could give and splurge and do all kinds of things in the emotional moment, but there will not be any long-term connection. There will not be a commitment and a planning if we do not first have a spiritual change in our heart, a spiritual concern that then gets that, that then begets a social concern. I hope that makes sense. That the overflowing, I've talked about this about this before, the vertical and the horizontal, that the overflowing comes from our relationship of seeing what we've been given from God, and then it overflowing out of us to other people. So moving on, how not to give. What are some ways that we should check ourselves? I've given you sort of the, the litmus test, the location we should be in as giving. How are we dislocated from that? How are we not giving? What are the distortions that we've given? What are the explanations we've given? Here's one. Giving and not caring. The temple as the talisman. A talisman, the definition of a talisman is an object. It's usually a ring or a stone. This was very common with like old sailors. It's thought to have magical powers and bring good luck. So it's like the rabbit's foot around in the necklace, right? That you hold and brings good luck. Or, or the, you know, it's crossing your fingers. It's the talisman. Some people give as a talisman. They give because they're afraid. <laughs> Either they're afraid of God's wrath or it's a sedative for their conscience. It cleanses the guilt. It excuses all their weak. It excuses the heart's evil or the hand's sloth. And it's a sedative and they give to just sort of like, okay, I'm giving and then I just don't want to care about it anymore. I just want it to be done. I'm, I'm overwhelmed by it. That is not what our giving is. The second is that our giving, but grudging the effort and expense of it all. If you're, Keller puts it this way, it says, if you're starting with, do I have to? You're probably starting on the wrong foot with your giving. If you're saying, do I have to? then you are grudging the effort and the expense. And there's a very, if you notice that the tone in, Ezra, in, in Nehemiah in chapter 10 couldn't be more different. These are not people that are grudging the expense. 
These are people that are saying, we take it on ourselves. We just want to do it. The Macedonians were, were not begrudging the expense. They were giving and then some because they just so wanted to relieve the saints. So check yourself. Are you, are you grudging the effort or expense? Are you giving it out of compulsion? There's another way of saying that, which we know is not how we should give. Um, are you feeling as though pastors and churches are extortionists? I think it's just a good thing to say plainly. Do you have experience or baggage or, or very real and present concerns that the money's being misused, that it's not going to the good you'd like to see it go to? It could be this, um, that a pastor has leveraged heaven or hell over you based on your giving. If you don't give, it's a bully tactic. If you don't give, you're going to hell. You got you to tie 10%. You won't make it into heaven. Um, and we've actually let that grow into either a regret over giving, so we don't give anymore, we don't give as much, or a resentment of leadership, which honestly will grow into a resentment of the church as a whole. It will fester. Is that happening in you? Or are you giving to a T? Are you perfectly giving a 10% tithe so that you can't be touched? You've checked all the boxes. You're so consumed with the holiness and the piousness that you say, I can't, you can't touch me. Or you've said, I've done it, I'm good, and you're not reforming the rest of your heart. So as you're giving away to it, again, excuse yourself by, by your piousness. A good example of this would be the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. There was a thing, and I'm not hating on Catholics here, by the way. I love so many Catholic people. Disagreements with them, but love so many of them, right? It says, um, the indulgence were pain to lessen sin or punishment in purgatory. So it was like, if I pay a certain amount of money, I just have less punishment. It's exactly, that's exactly what this view of giving would be. Jesus speaks out to this in Luke 11. He says, verse 42, he says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and ruin every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So, going along, I'll cut to the chase. Um, these are the temptations. These are the things that we should check ourselves with. Our heart is crying out when we're asked to give. I know it is. Because every time you donate, every time you sit down and look at that number, the heart can cry out and it has all kinds of temptations. And it puts us into turmoil. But I want to take us into a place of hope. And I just want to say this. Um, we give because we have been given everything. Don Carson puts it this way, he said, we should value the freedom from sin so highly that we simply love to give. And then he, he quotes Paul, who quotes Jesus in Acts 20, saying, it is more blessed to give than receive. It, when, when you give, when you get, there's a very finite feeling to it, right? Think about it this way. My daughter, Amelia, loves to save her money, right? She loves to save it because she likes to just kind of imagine what it could do. It's almost more fun than spending it. Once she spends it, she only has one thing. It's very finite. It's like suddenly it's just one thing. I think giving is so much more the infinite. When you give, your imagination can run wild. You think about all the things it could do and you don't know. You don't have control. They're not for you. You just get to love it. Second Corinthians continues that God loves a cheerful giver. And I think, that, I think that if we look at it this way, we can say this. Um, 
that giving is a form of taking up our cross. And I'll end here. That just as Jesus left all of his riches to die for us, that giving is an ask for us to take up our cross. But Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan preacher, and he said when people said, when people say they can't afford to give, what they're really saying is, I can't afford to give without burdening myself. But scripture says, bear each other's burdens. How can you do that if you're not willing to burden yourself? Edwards is saying that a tithe or offering should be given until some of the burden on others is falling on you. And then there will be peace and justice in the world. Again, quoting Keller there. Then there will be peace and justice in the world. And isn't that what Jesus came to bring? So I'm going to challenge us today to bring equity through your own giving. To sacrifice. Tonight before bed to talk and meditate on this with each other. Tomorrow, this week, to just just reassess the way that you give. what, what What you're encountering, what the problems are, what the temptations are. What's holding you back? Bring that to each other. Bring that to other Christians. If you need to, bring that to me. Bring that to Megan. Bring that to somebody you can talk to. And and just really wrestle with it. And really look at your heart. Because God cares about your heart more than anything else. And your giving is not going to save you out of anything. Jesus has already done that for you. He says, overflow. Let's pray. God, it's so hard to pack these things in. Um, but I know that your spirit is helping us meditate on these things. God, I just pray that you would be on all of our hearts, that we would feel a freedom in everything we give, that we would see such goodness come out of the little that we can give, um, that it would bring us joy, that it would be the greatest form of joy in our life, what we can give to others. In Jesus' name, amen.